So, Hub. Uh, yeah, Miles. I've been wondering about Limbo. The party dance or the dimension? Uh, the dimension, mostly, although now that you mention it... Well, what have you been wondering about it? Well, instead of killing dire wraiths, Rom uses his neutralizer to banish them to Limbo, right? Well, I mean, to be fair, he does kill an awful lot of dire wraiths, too. In fact, he eventually got Galactus to cookie monster their whole planet up. But yes, in addition to that, he uses his neutralizer to banish them to Limbo. And dire wraiths are evil, right? Oh, super evil. Then is sending them to Limbo such a good idea? I mean, what if they team up with Sim or Belasco? Oh, I see. No, he doesn't send them to that Limbo. Okay, uh, how many Limbos are there? Well, are we talking comics or Catholicism? Uh, let's stick with comics. That's probably a good idea. Well, Silver Age DC probably has my favorite Limbo. That's the one run by a guy in a gargoyle costume who manipulates negative emotions and can only be defeated if you use tiny pliers to crush the magic ring that he wears that's shaped like his own head. Uh-huh. But if we're sticking to the 616, there are probably two. Probably? Well, there used to be three, but then one of them got retconned away. That might have been an accident, though. Also, since I'm pretty sure Catholicism exists in the 616, there could potentially be a couple more. Okay. The limbo that comes up most often in the X-Men is the one where magic sometimes lives. Right, the one where Dr. Doom tried to take over so he could turn the whole dimension into sweet, sweet Prometheum. Yeah, that one. That's other place limbo. It's the most traditionally scary limbo. There also used to be True Limbo, which is the place where Rom banishes Dire Race to when he doesn't feel like killing them. It's a big empty place that has some random geometric shapes and floating volcanoes. Once they're sent there, the race can see our universe but can't affect anything. <laughs> they hate that. You said that used to be a place. Yeah. See, the other limbo is Temporal Limbo, which exists outside of the time stream and is mostly associated with time travelers. When the Avengers went there in Avengers 268 to fight Kang, they ran into some dire wraiths. So ever since then, it's been retconned that Temporal Limbo and True Limbo are the same place. Well, besides the emigrated by way of retconned dire wraiths, who else lives in Temporal Limbo? Well, let's see. There's a Mortis, but we really can't get into his whole deal. Why not? Well, ironically, we don't have the time. The super short version is that he's Mr. Fantastic's descendant, or his dad, or Dr. Doom's descendant, or he's Kang, or Kang's nemesis, or an ancient Egyptian pharaoh, or most likely, all of those things at the same time. But mostly, he's a dick. Fair enough. Besides him, there's the Space Phantom, who is nowhere near as cool as his name would imply, and Tempest. Tempest? Yeah, Tempest is a 30-foot club-wielding giant that Immortus made out of the very ether of Limbo. Temporal Limbo, that is. He works for Immortus, but he's not that thrilled about it. Turns out Temporal Limbo sucks so bad that at one point, Tempest tried to destroy the entire universe just so he wouldn't be stuck there. How'd he go about doing that? He tricked a character from the 616 into taking some ill-advised trips through time. And who did he choose as his agent of Universal Armageddon? The Fantastic Four's mailman, Willy Lumpkin. What? I'm Miles Stokes. And I'm Hub, filling in for Jay Editon. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time somebody did. Welcome to episode 204 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And, Hub, welcome to the show. Thanks for guesting while Jay's in Latveria. Oh, thanks for having me. 
So I think we first met years and years ago. Jay and I used to write our show at the Hobnob Grill, and you were working there at the time. And so we would talk comics uh, when, when you came by the table and stuff. And you were doing your own show into the Bronze Age then, and then you came up with Teen Titan Wasteland, which became Tighten Up the Defense, which is now one of my very favorite shows. Huh. And, and now you're here. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, if memory serves, uh, appropriately enough, I overheard you guys talking about Bronze Age Captain America. That could very well be, yeah, because that would have been when we were covering roughly Bronze Age X-Men, so perfect. Yeah. Man, well, so today, speaking of the Bronze Age, listeners, have we got some bizarre, glorious treats for you. We're going to be talking about a Captain America annual and about a couple issues of Rom Space Knight. They are very, very different stories, both from the Bronze Age, both kind of great, both supremely bizarre. Yeah, that is kind of an understatement. So here's the question. We have that Captain America annual, which is just Bronze Age goofiness. Then we have the ROM story, which is, I don't know about Bronze Age disturbing. I think it's just regular disturbing, although it's very good. Yeah, I think that's fair. So where do we start? Do we start with delight and move on to despair or the other way? Uh, I think we should bring them to the heights of ecstasy before we take them to the depths of uh, different, darker ecstasy. Excellent. Yeah, be careful about the ecstasy. It's uh, this. These pills are red. They're a little bit different. They're cut with something. We don't know what. Might be Prometheum. Best to stay away. Yeah, don't take the brown Prometheum. There's a tent set up for that. You're going to have a bad time. Word to the wise. If you learn nothing else from this episode, listeners, um, that. All right, well, let's jump in then to Captain America Annual number four, also known as the Great Mutant Massacre, but like not that mutant massacre. Right. This was written and penciled by Jack the King Kirby, one of the comics greats. I mean, I would say if I had to pick a single most impressive person that ever did comics, it would be hard not to say Kirby. He would probably get my vote. I I love Jack Kirby, and in a lot of ways, this era is my favorite of Jack Kirby's era. Maybe tied with most other eras of Jack Kirby, but still, when he comes back to Marvel— in the late 70s, and that's when he did this, that's when he was putting out Devil Dinosaur and The Eternals, and just this wonderful font of creativity. It's really, really fun. He he gets, his stuff from this era gets a bad rap, but uh, not with me, it doesn't. It's pretty great, at least going by by this story. Interestingly enough, Jack Kirby, I mean, he co-created the X-Men, and yet if you only saw his stuff in X-Men, he wouldn't really hold up very well. I mean, his Fantastic Four, his Thor, his this, all glorious. His X-Men? Eh, it's all right. Yeah. So, uh, there's Jack Kirby. We also have inks by John Verport- Verporten, I think, and John Tartaglione. Uh, so, this is a Captain America annual. The X-Men are nowhere to be found, but a certain mutant is, and he's really great. This came out, actually, while X-Men was starting to get big. Giant Size X-Men number one had happened. The X-Men had had some adventures. They were having a real good time, but they're off, you know, elsewhere, because we have other stuff going on. Yeah, this is, as I already said, a super fun issue. It actually reminds me more than anything else of this Japanese horror movie called House or Hausu. Have you ever seen that? I've heard of it. I have not seen it. It is definitely worth watching. It is incredibly strange. But what reminds me of this comic about it is that it is making no pretense of trying to be something else. It was revelatory when I saw the movie because I was just like, oh, that's right. A movie can just be a bunch of crazy stuff that happens. It 
doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't have to try to pretend that it's looking like something realistic. There are set pieces in that movie that are very obviously like the kind of sets you would see in a summer stock production, but they're beautifully painted and it doesn't stop and comment on them. It just keeps moving. And with this, we were talking before, and this comic gives me almost an appreciation for Rob Liefeld in a weird way. Um, And that sounds disparaging possibly to both artists, and I don't mean it that way to either, but everything looks wrong, but in a way that's really fun and I really like, and I never appreciated Rob Liefeld in that way, but the way that I like this Kirby comic, I can identify. Yeah, there's like this more human than human intensity to everything. Like if somebody, you know, would be making a shocked face, instead they're making a mega shocked face. If they'd be throwing a punch, instead they're putting their entire body and reality itself behind that punch. And I love that about it. Yeah, and they also have a lot of little tiny lines on their face, but they're thicker inked lines, and I like that. I mean, the most important thing to remember is that more lines mean better art. In this case, they they do. Uh, So I, I guess we should talk a little bit about what happens in this comic. So I'll start out with a... Previously on Magneto. So, like we mentioned, this came out in uh, the early days of the all-new, all-different X-Men. In this case, November of 77, according to the internet. This was actually just a few months after Magneto was restored from babyhood by one of the Erics the Red, and then fought the all-new, all-different team for the first time. This is well before any backstory about his family's tragic fate in the Holocaust, about his own moral grayness as he tried to just do what was best for everybody. Basically, he was a villain, and yes, he wanted to make the world better for mutants, but that's because he was one. He wanted them to rule the world and crush the foolish humans. If he if he had a mustache, which sadly he does not, he would be twirling the living shit out of it. I think he would probably put little iron filings in his mustache so that he could twirl it with his mutant powers. Oh man, that reminds me. So very early in the show, like the first couple of episodes, we talked about facial hair and X-Men, and I don't even remember the context of it, but we did get a bunch of fan art and somebody did, you know those little boards where like you have the, the metal pen and you can you can draw the iron filings over oh, people? Oh, Wooly Willy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, someone drew one of those of Magneto and it was goddamn delightful. Oh, that sounds terrific. Yes. Speaking of terrific things, uh, Hub, would you do us the honor of reading the glorious opening narration to this issue? Absolutely. Power for good or evil affects the destiny of all humanity. It is the battle for this power that plunges our most famous superhero into a bizarre and deadly situation, which cannot be surpassed for sheer tension, terror, and transhuman turmoil. Above all, this is a tale of mutants. Then, add the greed of the villainous Magneto, and you have the ingredients for the Great Mutant Massacre! Oh, man. It almost feels more Silver Age than Bronze Age, and I love that about it. It kind of reminds me of uh, the fact that Stan Lee would, like, open every single episode of every single Marvel cartoon for years. Like, I grew up in Spider-Man and and his amazing friends, and it was just all Stan Lee selling you this used car that he was positive was the greatest used car of all time. And this is like that, but kind of better. Yeah, he did the narration for some power records that I used to have, too, which had a very similar feel to it. Yeah, it's it's fun stuff. But yeah, you were saying it almost sounds Silver Age. It sounds like it's going to be way more like, I don't know, those fabulous men and their flying machines, (laughs) like perhaps even Golden Age. Maybe. Yeah. But what we start with is uh, something that fits any age, which is a great big fight between Captain America and Magneto. And yeah, that whole dynamism that Kirby is famous for. And I guess Liefeld, now that you mention it, I'm going to think of them together in the future. And that's so strange. It really uh, is. It's, it's all on display here. And the premise is my favorite part. 
Yeah, they are fighting for control of the world's tiniest man because they have answered an ad in a newspaper. Unique and talented mutant seeks home environment and care from concerned and sensitive persons or agencies equipped to help. <laughs> they go from fighting to having a pretty civil conversation within the course of like one page. And Captain America here almost sounds like 90s Cyclops. I don't know what you're up to, Magneto, but you can count on me trying to stop it. Naturally. What are enemies for? The professional courtesy that they extend one another as adversaries, it reminds me kind of of those Looney Tunes cartoons where there would be the sheepdog and the coyote clocking into work and be like, morning, Steve. Morning, Eric. God, it totally does. It's surprisingly easy to just picture this version of Captain America and Magneto just transplanted into Looney Tunes. But they quickly find out what's going on. So Joe Keegan, who's this dude who placed the ad and whose apartment just got smashed up by, you know, uh, well-gloved heroes and villains, he arrives to show them the mutant in question, who he found on the highway. Yeah, and it is a one-inch tall, sometimes smaller, mute telepathic orange man in blue shorts and booties. He kind of reminded me of a tiny, tiny Ben Grimm, which actually, so when we first started recording, we record in Bobby Roberts Studios, and he had these little, like, uh, keychain toys of Cyclops and The Thing hanging from the microphones, and it kept making me think of that version of The Thing, which brought me back to those glorious times. That sounds nice, but are you sure that he didn't trap and shrink them? Holy crap, he might very well have. Or maybe it was Mr. One, and I just wasn't looking closely enough. Uh... Joe, Might be worth looking into. Right? Joe has looked very closely. He keeps this tiny mutant in a little wristwatch with, with breathing holes. Joe is a resourceful man, and I appreciate that. Magneto magnetically steals the watch and the little dude in that, and then he is crunched by a gloriously Kirby-looking monster who's just enormous and has little yellow dots on his forehead for no reason. So good. He kind of reminds me of Hellboy in that specific regard and no others. Yeah. But, uh, Hub, you were mentioning that this is a good look for Magneto when we were talking before. Oh, totally. He looks like drunk at a wedding Magneto because his hat is crunched on his head backwards and it's slightly askew and he just looks kind of dazed. It's a very casual look and I would totally love to have an action figure of it. Drunk at a wedding Magneto. This could be an entire series of action figures. I mean, Scott Summers with a necktie around his forehead. Oh, man. A whole line of drunk at wedding X-Men. I feel like a lot of people would probably die if the X-Men got drunk at a wedding. God, it's true. Eh, well, they'd be back in a few months. It'd be fine. Yeah, that's fair. Also, I mean, it seems like a lot of people die if the X-Men go to a grocery store. Yeah, just stay away from the X-Men listeners if you can. I mean, if you've been listening for 200-something episodes, you, you already know that. But Magneto... Magneto villain-splains a lot in general, but nowhere is that more true than his early history. As he says, You'll all pay dearly for this. Magneto will not be defied or defeated. I'll be back for Mr. One. He is destined for work in the service of Homo Superior. So those are some pretty great names they got there, huh? Mr. One and Mr. Two. I wonder if anybody ever gets it backward and really offends them and like they're not sure whether they should say anything or they <laughs> should just be happy that the person's trying to get their names right. Yeah, probably. I think it probably goes one way. I think like Mr. One is probably pretty stoked if he gets if he gets uh, if he gets mistaken for Mr. Two. But Mr. Two is just like, I'm not tiny and I don't live in a watch. Right. Uh, yeah. So Mr. Two is indeed the big gray, not exactly Hellboy looking guy. Mr. One is the tiny orange, possibly keychain. And yeah, Joe found both of them, as it turns out. 
Joe is definitely better at inventing watches to keep people in and little dioramas like that than he is at naming people. I bet the other kids at the other irregularly sized mutants at mutant school probably used to call them Mr. P and Mr. Pooh. Probably. Children are highly scatologically focused. It's true. Mm, man, irregularly sized mutant children can be so cruel. Ugh, the cruelest. Well, Cap brings the Mr. Men, which reminds me of the Mr. Men. Huh. Anyway, to S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters. And Kirby drawing any sort of technology is delightful, and that is totally true at S.H.I.E.L.D. HQ. Yeah, his science stuff looks so good, and it really did throughout his career. Like, at some point, his faculty started to go in terms of his eyesight, but in like into the mid-80s, he was doing Destroyer Duck stuff that just had these complicated-looking, amazing machines that are just fucking rad. As an information technology professional, I can confirm that the more stuff is visible on your machine, the better a machine it is. That is certainly the attack that I try to go with, which is why I leave as many icons and windows open on my computer at all times as I possibly can. It's just more efficient that way. Uh-huh. Well, Mr. One has been placed into a science machine of some sort that allows his immobile mute form to communicate in this sort of awkward telegram form on a screen. Yeah, it's kind of like that show Ghost Rider. I remember Ghost Rider. I haven't thought about that in years. As opposed to Ghost Rider, I think they should do a crossover, but I don't think they actually have. Yeah, I think it would be difficult, but it could be done. I think Ghost Rider would just end up leaving flaming letters places like he was a Skyrider, but on the sides of buildings. I bet his motorcycle penmanship is delightful. I bet it is. I Mine is not so good. Yeah. I mean, if you ever become the spirit of vengeance, that'll be an immediate upgrade. Yeah, I'll get some of those special Zaner Blosser pencils. Well, the penmanship of Mr. One, as depicted by this computer, is quite clear in its intent. Yes, he says, I don't want visitors. I need recreation. I want to get out of here. And that's echoed by Mr. Two as Mr. Two smashes up the big jail cell that he's in. Which I can identify with. They've been trapped there for quite some time, and they don't have any kind of a TV or book or anything. That's just kind of shitty. Seriously, I mean, at least being in a wristwatch is fascinating. Mm -hmm. Cap and the Dr. Science dude realize that the misters must be linked telepathically when one has a feeling the other acts on it, and vice versa. Obviously. Obviously, but... Meanwhile, on a large country estate in a remote suburban area... Not as cool as Asteroid M, but I'll, I'll take it. Magneto is examining, and this is where the story gets even better, a tiny spaceship that he found. Apparently, the reason he wants Mr. One, the reason he answered that want ad, is that he thinks that this tiny man can crawl into this tiny spaceship to look around and see if there's anything cool in there. I get it. It's like he... If you had a playset, you would want to have a tiny action figure to go with it. It's true. It's, it's incomplete as Magneto found it. And I don't think we ever actually find out much about how Magneto got a hold of this spaceship or what he hopes to do with it. I mean, he assumes there are weapons inside, but I feel like he assumes there are weapons inside, like, I don't know, a toaster oven. Well, to be fair for him, there are weapons inside a toaster oven. Anything made out of metal is a weapon in his hands. It's true. Although I don't know if I recommend putting... Well, I guess you could put metal in a toaster oven, just not like a microwave. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the metal parts of the toaster oven, if it's taken apart. I didn't mean your toast should be made out of metal. Okay, that would that would really hurt your teeth. It would indeed. Huh. Well, now that we've established that, so... It is confirmed that Magneto's tried to use his magnetism on this, and it didn't work, and that's why he needs a tiny man, which is the obvious plan B in this situation. Right. It makes me wonder if maybe he just found a Mighty Max playset, 
and he just can't use his powers on it because it's made out of plastic, but he doesn't recognize that it's made out of plastic because it's from the future. I mean, I know Mighty Max didn't come out until the 90s, but there's a lot of time travel floating around in the 616, as we talked about in the cold open. So, I mean, it seems like that's probably a Mighty Max playset that he found. Which implies to me, if we're talking about stuff from the cold open, that every single character found in this comic is actually Kang. Or Willie Lumpkin. One of the two, really. Those are your options. Probably. So, in this scene, we also meet Magneto's new Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. So, it's not the original with, like, Mastermind and Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch and Toad, and I guess Blob a little bit after that. Instead, we have Peeper, who has big eyes. Lifter, who has big everything. Burner, who has a great mustache and I guess can also burn stuff, but that's less important. Slither, who's a snake guy who also is, like, Mr. Fantastic-style stretchy. Like any snake. Mm-hmm. And Shocker, not that Shocker, this one has weird little red crab claw hands and can do electricity with them for some reason. I find his little crab claws very disturbing. Seriously. I mean, uh, it just also makes you wonder, like, how does he do anything with those? Like, things could get pretty troubling. I, I would imagine pretty quickly. Right? Well, back in not the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants uh, suburban base... Captain America and Mr. Two are going jogging because, you know, recreation. But, of course, they are quickly attacked by this newly introduced brotherhood and their carefully honed banter. Greetings, Captain America. Slither's my name, and strangling is my game. The name is Lifter. I can lift you and the Eiffel Tower and break you both in two. Now, Mr. Two responds to that one by saying, You may do the first, but you'll never get the chance to do the second. Which could be read as him just being a huge fan of the Eiffel Tower. Do what you will with me, but leave the tower out of this. Mr. Two is a good creature. Well, thankfully, S.H.I.E.L.D. and S.H.I.E.L.D.'s berets show up to help, but unfortunately, the bad guys escape. Mr. Two is pretty messed up. He seems dead, but he's still sitting upright, which kind of reminds me of my morning classes in college. I, I can see that. Back at S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters, Mr. One is gone. Magneto smashed the place up. As a scientist says, We were not prepared for such violent use of magnetic power. Then you should have been paying attention to, like, every single news story of the last 20 years. I mean, Magneto, that's kind of his deal. Well, at Magneto's place, uh, we have one of my favorite panels as Magneto looks into a tiny box. Incredible. Fantastic. I've got him at last. The smallest man in the world! But Mr. One doesn't move or speak, which angers Magneto enough that he starts pointing a candle at him and poking him. Yeah, this is not the nuanced character we get later. Magneto does take this opportunity to villain-splain his spaceship plan to the returned and assembled Brotherhood. Mr. One, he doesn't want any of this, though, so he strains harder than the morning after a cheese festival, and Mr. Two wakes up back at S.H.I.E.L.D. You could say he was straining to make a Mr. Two. You shouldn't, but you could say that. Hub, I'm so glad you're in this episode. (laughs) (laughs) So, Captain America has this whole thing figured out. There's one mind, but it's split between two bodies. It can go back and forth, and both the bodies depend on each other. The strength of one and the, um, tiny immobility of the other. Exactly. They both have strengths. Exactly. Now, Mr. Two wants to go and smash Magneto's shit up immediately to go save Mr. One, who, as we know, he needs, and also, sort of, is... He refuses S.H.I.E.L.D.'s help, but Captain America, I mean, he's been a good dude this whole time, so the two of them go off to be big damn heroes. Good for them. 
Hooray! Uh, Cap at this point does think that he wishes he'd been able to reach Professor Xavier and the X-Men for help, but uh, apparently they were off busy. Where, where do we think they are? Well, I think probably there's a pretty good chance. This is November in uh, 1977. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm pretty sure they were in Paris, where Nightcrawler had been corresponding with the creator of Asterix, a René Gossini. Um, and he went to visit him because he was a big fan. Um, and he accidentally teleported all of the X-Men into the room to, to surprise his friend, and he died of a heart attack. Oh, oh, man, that's really unfortunate. It really is. Fortunately, Professor X wiped the whole thing from everybody's mind. Okay, and then has he just been uh, Death of X style projecting Nightcrawler into the world since then? Like there hasn't really been a Nightcrawler? Or, or oh, you're saying the No, Rene Gossini died of a heart attack when he saw all of the X-Men show up. I was going to say that's not nearly as disturbing, but I guess that's a real person dying as opposed to a fictional character. So it's probably more disturbing. Aww. For some. Poor guy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you know, one of the many traumas that led Nightcrawler to be in such questionable stories as that time he got turned into a fake pope. <laughs> Who hasn't? True, true. Well, anyway, our two heroes break into Magneto's house, and there's a big fight. Before the fight starts, Magneto has used some tweezers and a little leash to poke Mr. One into his tiny spaceship that he found. Oh, it's like making a model boat. Yeah, I bet that guy is intense about dioramas. I wonder if he makes the Brotherhood do their own dioramas. It's like sort of a bonding activity, but he's really evil and megalomaniacal about it. It must fit into a shoebox, for Homo Superior must rule the world! These are three-quarter injection figures. They will not fit with these paraphernalia you've purchased. Oh, now I'm just imagining him and Apocalypse going to like a leadership conference, and Apocalypse is like, Dude, Eric, you gotta calm your shit down. I mean, I want to annihilate all of the weak so that the strong may thrive, but, you know, morale is a whole thing. No, we will go to Michael's now and get the proper equipment. <laughs> I love everything about this. Um, okay, so once again, we get some excellent fight banter. Lifter says, stand by for oblivion, chum. I love the word chum. It's a good word. And I'm pretty sure in this that Captain America, like, kills Shocker. I mean, Shocker comes back, so I guess not. But the impact and the big crack sound effect that Kirby draws, that does not look good. It feels like Shocker probably doesn't have a head after this. Yeah, he's... Almost certainly dead. They probably just found a different dude with tiny lobster claws to fill in after that. Wear this costume. Don't ask why. Come with us. Don't ask why. (laughs) And then Mr. Two fights Burner, and Burner throws a bunch of fire at him, and it seems like Mr. Two's okay for a second because his body starts adapting magically, but it turns out that what has happened is... All of his pores have shut off to protect him from the heat, and they've closed up, and then his skin suffocated, and now he's dead. Yeah, so, um, that's not great. Now, okay, the skin suffocation thing, is is that a real thing or what? It's not a real thing. It seemed like a lot of people thought it was a real thing for a really long time, and that was the premise of the movie Goldfinger. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, And they actually did have people on the set of Goldfinger to make sure that they left a tiny spot at the back of the woman's neck exposed (laughs) so that her skin could keep breathing. Um, But yeah, that was never a thing. As long as you can breathe through your mouth and nose you're okay, your skin doesn't need to. I mean, if you clog up all your pores, it's not a good thing to do. You can overheat, but... uh, you won't suffocate. Huh. Maybe Mr. Two was kind of like an amphibian and partially breathed through his skin. Well, it's too late now. He's gone. And Mr. One now moves for the first time. And so, uh, and you were saying you had a theory as to why. Well, 
maybe Mr. One can only control one body at a time since he's split between the two bodies. And he just always chose the bigger one because it's bigger and he liked it better. That seems reasonable, but now he's got no choice. And furthermore, he knows he's going to die. There can be no Mr. One without Mr. Two. He looks so sad. He looks so sad, but he has grim determination because the alien destruct lever is not hard to find. The blast symbol is the same in any language. That seems like a really bad idea. Like, having your cockpit console designed like a fast food register with little pictures of the food on it? Aren't they worried that somebody else will find that? Why do you need the blow everything up button to be so easily identifiable? I mean, maybe the people that created the tiny spaceship uh, had some sort of precognitive abilities. They knew this was going to happen, and they knew that Mr. One would have to go out in a place of glory. Or maybe they were engineers rather than UI designers. Hmm. Or maybe they just thought it would work like having a big button that says, don't push this button. The pictogram equivalent of that would pan out better than it did. Yeah, not so great, because indeed... Mr. One blows himself and the actually a weapon Magneto is right spaceship up and this detonates the whole goddamn house. It knocks Captain America out as he follows Magneto down an escape hatch and when Cap wakes up at the bottom of this pit, everybody's gone and the house is gone and it's this sort of bittersweet ending. We have no more Mr. One and Mr. Two and uh, the caretaking Captain America was hoping to do based on this want ad. Oh, you, you didn't do a good job, Steve. I know you tried, but intentions only go so far. Oh, boy. I wonder how many other wanted ads he answers. I mean, after this, probably not many. I'd get pretty discouraged. It seems like he already had at least one full-time job. And I think at this point, he was also a New York City cop, which he just kept ignoring. And I think eventually got fired because he just never showed up at work. Captain Rogers, is he... Has he ever worked here? Has any of, have any of us actually ever met the guy? And how did he get to be a captain when he just enrolled? Weird. Curiouser and curiouser. And that is that story. And I love it so much. It is goofy as shit. It is old school Magneto well before any of that of that glorious nuance, well before he became my one of my favorite comic book characters. But it is pure fun in every single panel. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. And that is not the point. It just seems to work based purely on momentum in, like, the best way imaginable. There's this just energy to it where it seemed like Kirby couldn't be bothered to look up who was in the Brotherhood of Mutants. So he's just like, I can't remember. I'll just make up new characters. And they were great, crazy characters. Yeah, uh, especially the guy with the little crab claws. I keep thinking about him. I don't know. There's something about that that's genuinely troubling to me, but delightfully mm. troubling. Yeah. And we'll take a drastic tonal shift from there to ROM number 17 and 18. This is uh, plotted by Bill Mantlo and Sal Buscema with script by Bill Mantlo and the consulting abilities of Chris Claremont. So how familiar are you with ROM? Not very. I know that Rom was a toy that mm -hmm. a company created and then said, hey, Marvel, make a plot like they did with one of my very favorite groups of characters in the Marvel Universe, Team America, the five motorcycle guys who could make a sixth motorcycle guy who showed up in one of the earliest New Mutant stories and who Professor Xavier then said, hey, new team of teenagers, um, I have to go talk to these motorcycle guys. Go like, I don't know, have one of your members get killed or something. <laughs> yeah, they were pretty great. Um. Yeah, I love Rom, the Space Knight. 
And by that, I mean, I love Rom the Space Knight, the comic book, because the character is kind of a dick in a lot of ways, but I grow to love him too. Rom is the first comic book I ever recorded a podcast about was Rom number one. It was like five years ago. Oh man, was that on uh, traveling through, through the Bronze Age? It is. Unfortunately, that that podcast is no longer up anywhere. The site that we had posted it through just kind of went down and we let it die on the vine. But uh, it was really fun and it got me into Rom the Space Knight. The way that I had initially heard about Rom the Space Knight was through this novel by James Gunn, uh, the director of the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Yeah. Although at the time I knew him as the writer and director of Tromeo and Juliet. <laughs> oh God, that was James Gunn? It was indeed. <laughs> But he wrote a novel called The Toy Collector that was about this guy who was addicted to collecting toys, and he stole pills from the hospital that he worked at and sold them to fund his toy collection. And it was intercut with scenes from his childhood of him playing with toys with his friend, and there was a traumatic event. It was one of my favorite books, and I haven't reread it since I was in my 20s, so maybe it doesn't hold up well. But I remember it being great, and... His holy grail of toys was Rom the Space Knight. And so I started looking into Rom, and I found this comic book series, which I loved. It's written by Bill Mantlo, uh, who wrote a ton of Bronze Age stuff and spearheaded a lot of the licensed properties that Marvel was doing at the time. Mm -hmm. He did Micronauts. He did Rom. He did a book called The Human Fly, which was based on a real-life stuntman. Which makes me think that if he could have done a series about Dick Warlock, the greatest stuntman, oh, who was man. still active at that time. Oh, the things that could have been. I mean, technically, the human fly wore a mask, so I can just imagine that it's Dick Warlock under there. I'm assuming it was Dick Warlock under there. I think that he has Wolverine-esque abilities, or apparently Captain America-esque abilities, to be in a bunch of places at the same time, because there's some Dick Warlocking that must be Dick Warlocked. <laughs> Name, Dick Warlock. Occupation, Dick Warlock. <laughs> I, I don't even remember how we first started talking about Dick Warlock on this show, but however it happened, I am so glad it did. Me too. But yeah, Bill Mantlo did a great job. And with Rom, he was given both a almost more difficult, but a ton of freedom in his task because it was a toy line that consisted of one toy. It was Rom. He had no other characters. He had no backstory other than he was Rom. He was a knight from space. Yeah, he was sort of this boxy, gray-looking dude. Like, he's kind of unremarkable. I saw a picture of the action figure while I was researching this episode, and it's not very good. Yeah, it was made by Parker Brothers, and it was their only action figure they ever did. They wanted to cash in on the Star Wars toy success that oh. was happening. But, yeah, they didn't have any backstory for him. So what Bill Mantlo came up with was actually pretty brilliant, I think. The bad guys are these shapeshifters called the Dire Wraiths, so technically any of your toys could be Rom's bad guys. <laughs> they could be toys you've known all your life. Maybe that Mr. Potato Head is secretly a Dire Wraith. Yeah, the Dire Wraiths I first encountered in Uncanny X-Men, they show up for a story and it is genuinely terrifying. Yeah, they are creepy as fuck. The whole thing has this sense of like claustrophobia and paranoia to it that works really well. And you have to keep reminding yourself, this is a licensed toy tie-in. It's kind of amazing. In general, the plot to a lot of the comics reminds me a lot of the movie They Live with Rowdy Roddy Piper, except for instead of Rowdy Roddy Piper, it's a dude with a toaster for a head. Not necessarily an upgrade, but not necessarily not. Depends on the toaster, I guess. Well, mostly now I just want to see a toaster with a mullet. I've never wanted anything more than I want that at this moment. Oh, boy. 
Anyway. I'm still stuck on this toaster thing. Right. Anyway, plot, <laughs> comic. Yeah, we should probably get into it. So, like we mentioned, we have Bill Mantlo, we have Dick Warlock, and we have Sal Buscema on art, and I mainly know him from doing the second half of Walter Simonson's incredible run on Thor. He's really good. I know he often gets overshadowed by his brother John Buscema, but I love Sal Buscema's work. I, you are preaching to the choir on that. Uh, he did the first, like, 50 Defenders books, too. He did these epic runs. He did almost the entire run of Rom the Space Knight, which is 75 issues. Um, and he's great. I, I get so used to his art and it's just so pleasing and comforting to me to look at it's delightful i love the speaking of jack kirby i love the intense facial expressions everyone has but something must cause those facial expressions and that's the plot so let's start out with a little bit of previously on x-men so, at this point in history, the Dark Phoenix saga had recently happened. That was a whole thing. Cyclops quit, so he's off to sail around with Lee Forrester for a while. Shadowcat, which is to say Ariel, which is to say Sprite, uh, Kitty Pride. Anyway, she's on the team now, so she fought a xenomorphy demon on Christmas, and she was part of Days of Future Past. We also have Storm, Colossus, Wolverine, and Nightcrawler, and that's the X-Men we see in this issue, because it's not just Magneto, we do in fact have the X-Men here. Hooray! We open, as we often do in X-Men, with Cerebro having discovered a new mutant. And Xavier sends the team, uh, including the still-always-confused Kitty, this is very early for her, to find it. But this one's weird. A, maybe it's not human, and B, it's in West Virginia. Right. You know, the X-Men dialogue in here seems really stilted at first. It was almost like Mantlo was trying to fit as much of the information on the back of an X-Men set of trading cards as he could into two pages. Um, so it would be like if our dialogue was like, Easy there, Miles Stokes. You may be enthusiastic about co-hosting a podcast about the X-Men, but don't forget that you have an impressive beard, Miles Stokes. My beard allows me to perceive that your facial hair is quite strong indeed, Nathaniel Hubbard, and that probably affects your ability to create your podcast, Tighten Up the Defense. <laughs> I, I, I do wish everybody talked that way. I mean, okay, obviously they wanted people who were not familiar with the X-Men to be able to know who these characters were in a very short amount of time, and it's quite efficient, but it does feel a little artificial. Um, what also seems kind of strange is Cerebro, which in this comic looks like a laser gun in a jungle gym had a baby, but whatever, mm. it gets the job done. How did that laser gun in that jungle gym meet, do you think? Um, I think it was an inanimate object singles bar. Um, oh. There was a toaster with a mullet in the corner, and he <laughs> thought he had a chance. But he accidentally said something that, now that he thinks about it, sounded kind of racist, even though he didn't mean it to. And that was the end of that. Like, oh, oh, typical. Right. <laughs> there is also... Uh, Wolverine's dialogue, he said he pops his claws at one point while they are still sitting in the danger room talking about going there. And Professor X tells him, put your claws away. We don't know what kind of danger we're facing. Yeah. Also, it's a thousand miles away. <laughs> I mean, they extend out like a foot, but uh, not nearly far enough. Yeah, not to West Virginia. No. Speaking of West Virginia, in near Clareton, West Virginia, a doctor is heading into town in a snowmobile to help an ailing lady. And he finds a guy named Jacob Marks, who he knows, and Jacob Marks' wife, who he knows. But this woman has aged like 60 years, and the dude himself turns into this 
pale, unidentified monster, and his son, who the doctor remembers delivering, has turned into some kind of a horror show that the reader doesn't even get to see. We just see the gloriously bucemified look on Dr. John Stennis's face as he recoils in horror and runs the hell away. You can tell someone in a Buscema comic is terrified because their mouth turns into a trapezoid that has stalactites and stalagmites of spittle on it. And that is what is happening with John Stennis. Very much so. We do, however, hear this small child. Hello, Doctor. Have you come to play with me? I mean, kids are kind of inherently creepy, but kids asking you to play with them, especially when they create spittle stalactites of terror in your uh, onlooking face, even scarier. Indeed. Elsewhere in West Virginia, a coroner heads into a nearby home where he's been invited to find what I thought initially was some kind of an intervention, except that one of the interveners is a giant silver robot sitting on a couch. It's Rom! And Rom is so badass looking. He, I know he's got the toaster head, but somehow it just all works. He's like 99% awesome, badass space robot character design and 1% mittens. A less creative artist would have said, no, 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 if I'm going to draw him into a comic, he needs to have fingers. But Buscema's like, you know what, fuck it, I'm going to show him doing awesome badass things with these mittens that the action figure had. There's a there's a panel in, like, the second issue of Rom where he just spends a bunch of time looking at his mitten hands. Like, he's just tripping out on them, and it is amazing. It is one of my favorite things that has happened in a comic. One of my other favorite things that happens in a comic is what is happening in this scene, which is Rom sitting down in a Barco lounger. And it looks like everybody is gathered around to have some kind of an intervention, except for he is there. And it's what you guys have called, I think, the strife factor, which is strife doing normal everyday things. But in his weird, pokey, spiked armor is always funny. It's delightful. And I mean, okay, I know the people in town, they know who Ram is, they've gotten a chance to get used to them, but they're all just so gloriously nonchalant. And they all explain, it turns out Ram hasn't been randomly killing people like it initially seemed. He's been very deliberate in choosing his victims. Uh, okay, let me let me rephrase that. He's been very deliberate in choosing to kill dire wraiths disguised as humans. And they all realized this recently because there was a wedding and there were two grooms and one was a monster. And so they're, they're all, okay, Ram's a hero. He just looked like a mass murdering psychopath the scene where he busts into that wedding it's like the graduate and it's amazing because he does bust down the door what's weird is he doesn't actually know that there is a second groom he thinks she's going to marry a human but he's part of this weird love triangle with brandy clark and steve jackson and they are his two best friends but also he's secretly in love with brandy and he was just trying to bust up their wedding but um anyway The coroner who's come over to their house confirms that the people that he's killed have the same have birth certificates showing that they were born on the same day, which is November 9th, 1945. Curious. It turns out that's actually Bill Mantlow's birthday, too. Different year, but I thought that's kind of a nice touch. So it turns out that the diorates are good at evil science. They're good at evil sorcery, but they're pretty bad at evil paperwork. I mean, you can't be good at everything. Maybe there's like one dire wraith who's great at evil paperwork, but that was one of the first ones that Rom banished, so now they're just awful at it. Mm, Makes sense. Well, anyway, the former bride and groom, who, as you said, were Brandy Clark and Steve Jackson, hey, I have some of his games, and I think she did some country music. Maybe they were different ones. Sounds plausible. Well, they snowmobile off with Rom to find this rumored dire wraith that married a human lady and had a questionable child that we saw earlier in the, uh, not cold open exactly, the second cold open of the issue. 
And when they get there, the dire wraith in question, the dad, Jacob Marks, he's actually pretty chill about the whole thing. He's like, yes, I'm a dire wraith, but uh, my wife is really, really sick. She got messed up by my kid. Can you just please get her some medical attention and then we'll deal with the rest later? I immediately like this guy. I know he's an evil dire wraith, but he's just such a good dude. He seems like a pretty solid guy, and he actually tries to explain to Rom what the situation is, but Rom is not great at listening. And it's like I said earlier, Rom... I love his comic books and I grow to love the character, but he's kind of a dick. He doesn't listen to people and it causes a ton of problems for him. It makes sense when you think about the fact that he is a 200-year-old dude. So he's pretty set in his ways about shit. He feels like he's heard everything that all those damn kids have to say with their slap bracelets and their baggy pants and they're marrying human women and having unholy offspring. He should talk to Wolverine about that. I bet they'd actually have a lot in common, grumpy old man-wise. Strangely, both maritime lawyers. What are the odds? Who knew? Right? I mean, we did. Obviously. So... This guy, Jacob Marks, he tells his story. His ship, his dire wraith ship, crash-landed back in 1940 on Earth. And after getting attacked a whole bunch by humans, he decided that that was not a fun thing to do, so he was just going to disguise himself as a human and live as one. But, like, not for nefarious purposes, just because he didn't want to get hit with pitchforks and torches a lot. It's not one of my favorite things to do. Right? So he met this woman named Marjorie, and he married her just so that he could, you know, look more human. Getting married is something humans do. Um... But then he ended up falling in love with her, and against his better judgment, they ended up having a baby, little Jimmy. And things were going okay for a long time. Jimmy wasn't always a terrible hellspawn, he was just a kid. Until 15-ish years later, some other dire wraiths showed up and said, Hey, uh, that kid belongs to the dire wraiths, of which you are one, by the way, you seem to have forgotten, so we're gonna go hang out with them. And our hero, Jacob, uh, said, Damn it. Shit. Okay. And then things got bad. Real bad. Behind locked doors, my son Jimmy was initiated into the secrets of his arcane ancestry. He proved a receptive pupil. And the dire wraiths uh, quickly educate young Jimmy in A, telekinesis, and B, being super goddamn evil. Mm-hmm. Which he demonstrates. His mom comes into the room and he says, Here, let me show you what pure thought is capable of. And then he lifts a toy tractor a few feet in the air telekinetically, which is impressive, I guess, but a little anticlimactic. But then he redeems himself by going all children of the corn and killing livestock and using telekinesis to be an extra jerk. And as soon as the dire wraiths stop coming to give him lessons, he ages his mom 50 years in seconds. Yeah, there we go. That's the evil. Totally. So, back in the present, Rom heads inside the house to hopefully save this lady. Well, actually, she's being taken off by his human friends to kill the, uh, banish, rather, the evil creature that had aged his mom. And it's a really cool scene. There's this diagonal panel, and the caption is diagonal as well. It really captures the sort of unnerving unreality of this room that is entirely turned into ice, and everything is just pure, shiny white with, like, shiny lines on it. Until Rom gets into young Jimmy's bedroom, which is totally normal, except for the fact that Jimmy, still looking like a totally normal kid, is glowing and hovering above his bed. So Rom whips out his energy analyzer, which is his equivalent of the magic sunglasses that Rowdy Roddy Piper wears and they live, lets him see who people really are, and he sees that the kid becomes hybrid. Sort of a... Uh... Fungus... Octopus man 
Yeah, he looks kind of like if SpongeBob's boss Squidward were sculpted by an artist who was super into HP Lovecraft, but using only chewing gum and melted purple crayons. And also it looks like he's got a Fu Manchu that's made out of spinal columns. I'll put this in the as mentioned, but this is a really creepy design. Like, he looks kind of like the dire wraiths I've seen, but somehow way more sinister. There's just, just this sense of pure, malevolent, arcane power coming off of him. Yeah, he's got definitely an old gods vibe to him. He's, um, I'm, I haven't had any nightmares about him yet, but it's a countdown. It's only a matter of time. So he's, he's a hugely powerful telekinetic, and I know the Dire Wraiths have magic powers. It's implied that this kid also was going to be a mutant, and that's what makes him greater than either the human or Dire Wraith side of it. And that's also how the X-Men could sense him with Cerebro. Exactly. Now, Jacob enters holding a pitchfork. He's trying to calm his son down. He knows there's going to be a big fight. You know, pitchforks aren't necessarily known for their soporific qualities. I mean, maybe it's like how you could pet a cat with your foot and like that's not really normal, but the cat's like, hey, it's the thing that's nice. Maybe he would just gently comb his son's hair with a pitchfork. It, it's a farmer thing. Probably. Well, ah, uh, uh, West Virginia. Unfortunately, with the swiftness of thought, the very pitchfork which Jacob Marks had thought to use to end the menace of his mutant son levitates off the floor and finds its final resting place in Jacob Marks' heart. He dies instantly his wraith spirit taking flight to wherever wraith spirits go, even as his decades-old human shell disintegrates and drifts as dust down to the floor. This is... This is legitimately sad, Hub. Yeah, that's ROM for you. Man, I mean, there's the scariness, there's the sadness, things are terrible. I mean, to be fair, the premise is that, like, you have these monsters that, like, kill people and then assume their form to do more evil things. There was an episode of Tiny Toon Adventures where <laughs> where Buster Bunny woke up and, like, he, he tried to wake all his other friends up, but it turned out they were all really monsters and maybe he was the only human uh, who, was, who was left anymore. Well, not human, I guess, Bunny. But still, it turned out the whole thing was a dream, but that shit gave me nightmares for years. The idea that, like, all human connection you could have, they're actually malevolent monsters and maybe they weren't ever real or maybe they were but they were killed like holy crap that is a very disturbing episode of tiny toons adventures seriously right who would have thought what well, and who would have thought that a toy tie-in comic would be this goddamn dark all the time but also really good i'd never read any rom before and this shit is awesome i've got a full run i will totally loan them to you you should read them they are great i, I love this plan well anyway Ron realizes from this story, that having seen Jacob Marks and having seen, you know, this boy who got turned from good to evil just by, you know, school, he realizes that wraith evil is nurture, not nature, as he thought. Jimmy could have been good, and that's what makes this even more tragic and makes Rom even angrier. But instead, Jimmy is naughty by nurture. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well done. Well done. Okay, so hybrid, which is to say Jimmy, which is to say hybrid, says that his next plan, his next trick is that he's going to force dire wraiths to mate with humans to make a hybrid army. I don't like that at all. No, that's a terrible plan. I hate this, Jimmy. Ah, uh, Jimmy, maybe you were good before, but since you started going to Wraith School, you totally suck, and I have no sympathy left. No, it reminds me of that Twilight Zone episode with a kid from uh, Lost in Space where he makes everybody do what he wants. It's called It's a Good Life because everybody has to think good thoughts or he'll banish them to the cornfield. Oh, was that Bill Mooney? I didn't yeah. Know. Yeah, he turned out to be that really sympathetic character on Babylon 5. Yeah, he also wrote the song Fish Heads. That was him? Yeah. 
This episode is now officially worth it for me personally, <laughs> having gained that knowledge. That's amazing. Anyway, Rom tries to banish him using his gun that he uses to do so, but no dice. Hybrid is too powerful. So Rom says, all right, it's time to set phasers to kill rather than to banish to limbo. He's going to execute this kid. Good. Right? Unfortunately slash fortunately, this is when the X-Men decide to show up. And what they just saw through their mutant eyes was a weird silver robot blow up a farmhouse and then just attack an innocent kid. So that's right, it's time for yet another misunderstanding-based hero fight. Ah, uh, Rom runs into this shit all the time. I know every hero runs into this shit all the time, but Rom should have more of an understanding of the fact that he is a giant silver space robot who is as far as people can see, killing their friends and neighbors. I feel like if he just took a little bit of time and maybe took a page out of not a rom comic book, but a different kind of rom-com, then he could put together a pretty neat disguise. They could have later on Rick Jones ends up sidekicking for him. Mm -hmm, as he does. Yeah. So... They could have a fun montage scene where he picks out a disguise for himself to wear. Like, maybe it could just be an eye patch. That seems to work for a lot of people. Right. So, picture it. Walking on Sunshine by Katrina and the Waves is playing in the background. Uh-huh. Rom keeps coming out of a dressing room in different outfits. First, he comes out with like a flowered sundress and a big floppy straw hat. And Rick Jones is just sitting there with his arms crossed, just shaking his head, going, no, Rom. <laughs> then Rom comes out just wearing an eye patch. And Rick thinks about it for a second, but then he wrinkles his nose and shakes his head and is like, no. And then Rom comes out in a trench coat and fedora. And big thumbs up from Rick Jones and Walking on Sunshine fades out. And then Rom doesn't run into this problem anymore because all anyone in the 616 wants out of a disguise is plausible deniability. Right. They're like, all right, trench coat and a fedora could have been Rom, could have been Raphael, could have been Dick Tracy. Who the hell knows? Could have been just about anybody. My theory is that everyone in the 616 just takes the attitude towards disguises that a lazy bouncer at a sleazy nightclub takes towards fake IDs. It's like, look, as long as you're making an effort, this is going to be a lot more work for me if I pretend I know this isn't really what it looks like. Go ahead. Right. You just want to cut out the people that aren't even trying. Like, I mean, if somebody is making a fake ID or, say, wearing a trench coat and fedora, maybe there will be some problems. Maybe there will be some underage drinking or some killing of your friends and neighbors. But, hey, at least it's going to be somebody who has a modicum of of style, a modicum of thoughtfulness. It'll make for a good story, if nothing else. Yeah. And if your boss comes over to you, you can say, like, well, how was I supposed to know? He had a trench coat and fedora. And then the boss just nods sagely and says, good point. Yep. You get a raise. <laughs> okay, that leads us to ROM number 18. And a child shall deceive them. Once again, we have the plot by Matt Lowe and Busema, the script by Matt Lowe. This time we have inspiration and assistance from Chris Claremont and Joe Duffy. Hey, I love Joe Duffy. She did Fallen Angels. I love Joe Duffy, too. She has, in the run of the Defenders that we're covering on Tighten Up the Defense, she's written in a number of letters columns to the Defenders back when she was a comic book fan. And it really shows her growing as a writer. Like, almost all of her notes are about, like, plot points and story development. And I think that really shows. Oh, man, she's so great. I, I wish she would do more stuff in the modern era. 
We have a great first page of the X-Men facing off against Rom, while Kitty in the foreground holds Jimmy, who's back in his human form, his face looking all Buscema-exaggerated evil at the camera, and, like, the hybrid form is wafting from Jimmy like smoke. It's pretty great. What's also pretty great is the fact that Rom helpfully recaps the last issue to the reader before resuming the fight. Yeah, he's good at internal dialogue. How can I convince them that the mutant menace they seek is not myself, an alien, but an apparently harmless 15-year-old boy? Well, you could start by turning that thought bubble into a word bubble. Also, wait, 15? Jimmy does not look 15. Like, he looks way younger than Kitty. Yeah. Ah, well. We get some great dialogue. Mantlo really does the 77 X-Men well. Teleport away from him, elf! You're in the way of my claws! We must attack as Team Wolverine! Stow it, Man of Steel! Nobody made you Scoutmaster of this troop! This is totally 70s X-Men. Yeah, it works really well. I, I Like I said, I think a lot of the credit to this goes to Joe Duffy. She had previously written some of the X-Men's appearances in Power Man and Iron Fist, and she's just great. I mean, she also gave us Don and Bill, the two greatest, most heroic lobsters of all time. Do you think they're related to the Shocker? You know, I fear they at least hung out. Probably. So, Hybrid, as part of this fight, decides to amp up Storm's powers to create a deadly storm, a deadly blizzard. And it turns out that's a really good call, because the X-Men have a lot of trouble coordinating and working as a team. They also still have no idea about the fact that Hybrid, Jimmy, is the villain and not Rom. Yeah, the storm... Great call, and it really adds to the atmosphere of just tension and drama and confusion and chaos. Yeah, and speaking of chaos, Kitty inadvertently phases through Rom, and he gets all nauseous and kind of freaks out and gets messed up and weak. And, I mean, Kitty can disrupt circuitry. Is Rom... So, Rom's not exactly a robot, is he? Nah, he's a cyborg. He had a bunch of robot parts grafted onto his human soul so that... Yeah, Galador got all completely militarized when the Dire Race attack, and they went from being a hippie planet to being a super militaristic planet, and he was the first person to volunteer to get most of his human innards sliced up and replaced with robot parts. Shades of Beta Ray Bill, which are very good shades to bring into your comic. Indeed, in a, in a lot of ways, very similar. Amid the chaos, hybrid villains hard at Rom. Shall we end this little charade now, Rom? How do you prefer to die? Gasping for air, asphyxiating as I cut off your respirator, which supplies oxygen to the human cells grafted onto your armor? Or shall I age you as I aged my mother? Will your biostructure break down before your armor turns to rust? This is a far cry from the villain speeches Magneto gave us back in that annual. It is so dark genuinely disturbing like hybrid is a really scary villain like i know we're talking about some of the bronze age silliness here but listeners like if you have a chance track these issues down it's kind of hard because marvel doesn't have reprint rights but they're they're around and they're cheap too they are very cheap it's true uh but yeah scary shit very good villain and there's a big fight and hybrid is kicking ass partially because of the storm partially because he's just very powerful he damn near kills colossus and Logan eventually fights the exact wrong dude, as Logan does. This is the era where he just wanted to cut basically everybody. Which is surprising, because he can smell evil. And he can smell that hybrid is evil. I have a no prize for this that may have actually been mentioned in the comic. I don't remember offhand. Um, but the storm is making all the smells go all around, and so he can't tell where the smells are coming from, and he just assumes that they're coming from the big metal dude and not the little kid who's making scary faces at the camera. I guess that's a reasonable assumption. 
What do you think evil smells like? I think it smells a little bit like uh, when you microwave fish in the break room at work. Ooh. I mean, it's a bad smell, but there's also just a lack of consideration. That's fair. I was thinking spoiled mustard. Ugh. Oh, as a lover of mustard, that makes me extra sad. Mm, as a hater of mustard, it fits all of the boxes for me. Hmm. And I brought you on this podcast with a clear heart and what I thought were clear eyes. <laughs> now we are foes. But we'll finish the episode anyway. So, 16 pages into this fight, as Logan and Rom fight, as Hybrid does terrible things to everybody else, masked by the storm, 16 pages in, Rom finally tries to say, oh, guys, I'm, I'm actually a good guy. I, I didn't kill anybody. Yeah, unfortunately, the person he says that to is Logan. It, it doesn't work so well. Uh, elsewhere in the fight, Hybrid reveals himself to Kitty. I mean, not like that. Well, kind of like that. I think kind of like that, yeah. Yeah, and she is horrified. There's this wonderful three-panel series that Busema draws as her facial expression goes from confusion to utter horror. And then he says she'd be a good receptacle for his cross-breeding experiment. Dude, she's a teenager. No, no, not okay. Boo! Seriously. Kitty Pride, though, she's got gumption. She's got moxie, and she's got spunk. Hybrid hates spunk. What am I doing? I'm an X-Man, not some scared schoolgirl. I mean, I'm scared, sure. But I've got my phasing powers, my X-Man training, and my brains. Now I've just got to stop shivering long enough to use them. I'd forgotten how much I loved early Kitty Pride. She's just so much fun. Mm-hmm. She explains what's up to Logan, and he tries to fire Rom's neutralizer at hybrid. And apparently he can fire any gun as a Canadian Secret Service guy. He didn't think about this gun, which is a space gun and is only programmed for Galadorian, so it kind of blows up on him because he's not a space knight. Oops. Rom thinks to himself that the gun has a setting for banishing, a setting for destroying, and a setting for both banishing and destroying. How does that work? It's sort of an insult to injury kind of thing, I think. It's not strictly necessary, but if you really hate somebody like this guy, that's what he does. It seems like it would be maybe functional in terms of it would just get rid of the body afterwards. In which case, why wouldn't he always have it set on that? Yeah, seriously, with all the misunderstandings he has due to his lack of trench coat? Yeah, just slip things up under that rug. Now, this gun, the Neutralizer, obviously it's very important in ROM, but speaking of X-Men crossovers, this is the technology that Forge would later base his power Neutralizer off of. You know, the gun he tried to fire at Rogue and accidentally hit Storm with and took her powers away? Gigantic X-Men plot point, totally from a ROM Space Knight thing. I love when the toy tie-ins work with the regular Marvel Universe. It's just nice. Oh, and it works so well with every ROM thing. I've, I've ever seen. Now, Kitty tries. Rom points out, and she intuits some combination thereof, that because she phased through him and it messed him up, she can somehow interact electrically with Galadorian stuff. And sure enough, she lifts the gun, concentrates real hard on doing electric stuff, and disintegrates hybrid. And it is super gross and super awesome. And super satisfying because that dude was a super fucking creep. Yeah, like seriously, any sympathy we had for hybrid. I mean, we have like one panel of Jimmy being kind of normal and then so many panels of hybrid just being the goddamn worst. Ugh. Terrible. Unfortunately, this blast also knocks Rom through the banishing rift that was part of the destroy and banish setting. 
and she feels awful. She worries that she's killed the guy who they only just realized was trying to uh, fight bravely to destroy this terrible being. Yeah, he falls into limbo. There's some weird volcanoes that are floating around, and uh, that's kind of where it ends. Yeah, I, I assume that cliffhanger is picked up in the next issue, but for now, all we get is Storm's sad denouement. Our mission here is done, X-Men. Let us return home and pray that our unknown ally, whom we gravely wronged, is at peace. Yeah, he is. He's in limbo. But he's only there for an issue. He gets back. Don't don't worry. I was a little worried. I mean, otherwise, those remaining like 50 something issues of Rom would be inaptly named. Yeah. Yeah. Really boring. It's mostly just like everybody in Claritin wandering around West Virginia being like, where's our big silver buddy? He was really good at interventions and we're worried that our buddy Rick has a drinking problem. Yeah. I mean, we we got Alan to put on some metal mittens, but it's just not the same. Oh, Rom. So, yeah, that's Rom number 17 and 18. And it's a really good story. Now, it's not much of an X-Men story, but that's kind of the theme we were going for with this episode, like X-adjacent stuff from the Bronze Age. But I recommend it. Like, I'm excited about reading more ROM. And also, it was just so nice to see the 70s X-Men again. We've gotten up to the 90s in the podcast, and the 90s have a lot to recommend them and a lot to not. But there was just this sort of straightforward, almost innocent charm to 70s X-Men. And man, I miss that. Yeah, it was pretty great. It was fun seeing them in action and... I, like I said, I love it when the toy tie-ins collaborate with the larger Marvel Universe. It just makes a nice, bigger, weirder picture for everybody. One time Kitty Pride turned into a space centaur because of Micronauts. I remember that. One of my other favorite panels of all time, in addition to Magneto and the Tiny Man. Was that written by Mantlo? Uh, I don't remember if it was written by Mantlo or Claremont. I want to say Claremont did it because there was this really creepy thing involving evil Xavier and Mirage and we blamed oh, Claremont for it. That makes sense. But that one's a really good one, too, except for that one part. The rest sure. of it's really good. <laughs> so those are our issues. And uh, yeah, I had a lot of fun with both of them. What's also fun are our listeners and their questions. Gary Rickleman asks on Twitter, what happened to those mutants Magneto recruited in that issue? They all showed up as resistance at the end of New Warriors Volume 3 and are handily defeated. Were they depowered or mentioned after M-Day? I was very surprised to find when I looked this up that they're actually around a lot. Like, a character, Peepers, who shows up later in an issue of X-Factor? Yeah, same Peepers. So, among other things, they will fight the Defenders later as Mutant Force. Hub, I'm looking forward to you getting to that. Me too. They'll fight Captain America as the Resistance, and then the New Warriors as, I think, Mutant Force, or maybe it was the Resistance. Anyway, one of those. Now, most of the uh, members of this team don't do all that much exciting outside of that, but both Peepers and the Crab Claw Shocker have a surprising number of X appearances afterward. So Peepers will team up with Logan and Beast in prison at one point and is one of the 198 mutants to keep his powers after M-Day, his giant eye seeing things shooting laser powers. He's got a real set of Swiss Army eyeballs there. He really does. I wonder what else they can do. God, so much. If he could spin them around or be a uh, albino baboon, was it? Yeah. He could hypnotize people. Exactly. Uh, also, Peepers will later become a bartender at the supervillain bar Satan's Circus, which is such a good name for a supervillain bar. Not a very good circus, though. Uh, true. Well, I guess it kind of depends on what you're going for. Fair like enough. Fire and torture. Uh, and then, unfortunately, in that X-Factor story I mentioned, Peepers will get killed by Predator X. A sad end to a glorious large-eyed character. Hmm. 
As for Shocker, uh, he will later work with Eunice the Untouchable on Genosha after it gets destroyed at the beginning of Grant Morrison's run, and then show up again in the really weird Genosha-based Excalibur Volume 3 that had nothing to do with Excalibur, where it's like Xavier and Magneto and some other mutants, like this one freak show who I kind of liked, um, just on Genosha rebuilding, and then it ends really abruptly. Not one of the better later Claremont works, but at least it's got Shocker in it. That's the important thing. Transformers Out of Context asks on Twitter, With Rom currently part of IDW's Hasbroverse alongside the Transformers, and Marvel's original plans for the original Transformers comics having them set on Earth-616, how would you have the Transformers interact with the main Marvel Universe? Or just the X portion of it? Now, I understand there's a lot of really good Transformers comics out there, and some of them are Marvel. But... What I'd really do is I'd have them really lean into the robots in disguise thing, because I want to see a 20-foot robot in a fedora and trench coat transform into a tractor trailer with a fedora and a trench coat. And even then, is it Rom? Is it Raphael? We don't know. Is it Steve from down the street? Could be anybody. Um, I think my favorite fedora trench coat costume that it worked on was Godzilla one time. Wait, what? Yeah. Godzilla wore a trench coat and fedora and was unrecognizable he had been shrunk down to being about 12 feet tall at that point but still oh well i mean i wouldn't have been able to tell the difference exactly who could but it was in the marvel universe that's amazing so one of my favorite things that they do with the tie-ins is they will give a the new toy tie-in character a traditional marvel 616 sidekick and have them be like an entry point into the series so like in godzilla godzilla was opposing uh dum dum dugan who was leading shield at the time and they had a lot of interactions or like rick jones teaming up with rom so i would give the transformers a as guardian sidekick okay i would go with volstag the voluminous that would be amazing he would be so delighted about everything and every time there was a fight he'd be so proud to go gloriously into battle with them but he'd also kind of you know find a way to not really participate in the battle but then claim credit for all of it while he was fighting with giant robots exactly and he would be explaining what midgard asterix earth was to them the whole time but it would be his understanding of midgard which would also be usually wrong I love this. I mean, one of my favorite Volstagg scenes is in Simonson's run, obviously, when the Warriors 3 are in New York after the end of the the, the Cert War, the war against Surter, and it's just Volstagg going around theorizing like about what all these kitchen gadgets and stuff are for, wearing this big I Heart New York t-shirt that's way too tight on him, and it's just, it's pure delight. Hub, I fully support this plan. Marvel, if you're listening, Hub should write this. And also that one um, Brotherhood of Evil Mutants Babies comic that he's always talking about in his show. Both of those things. Agreed. Excellent. Now, we are a fully listener-supported podcast, and some levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from a variety of fictional characters and or concepts. So, with that being said, let's turn this over to Bronze Age Magneto. Curse that patriotic pest, Captain America. Without his incessant meddling, I, Magneto, Master of Magnetism, would have succeeded in my scheme to unlock the tiniest spaceship in the world with the tiniest person in the world. But the mutant race shall triumph, and so too shall Magneto soon be victorious. If I can but arrive before that star-spangled simpleton, I can activate the best-smelling tractor-trailer in the world with the best-smelling human in the world, Richard Dupaton. Or I can unlock the slipperiest toaster oven in the world with the slipperiest human in the world, Wizardrew. 
Tremble, homo sapiens. The hour of homo superior shall soon arrive! And so that's that. Hub, thank you so much for being on the show. It was so much fun doing this episode with you. Oh, I really enjoyed it so much. Thank you so much for thinking of me. It was a real pleasure. And if people want to hear more of your dulcet tones, where can they find you? Ah, well, first you should look inside your heart because I'll always be there. Is that what that was? Yup. Sorry. But in addition to that, you can find me at Titan Up the Defense, T-I-T-A-N Up the Defense, uh, in any of your various podcatchers. It's every week we go through either a new Teen Titans comic or a Defenders comic from the Bronze Age, and uh, we have a couple drinks and talk about it. It's a lot of fun. It's a great show. It's it's one of my very favorites, so highest possible recommendation for that one. Thank well, you. At some point, um, hopefully we can have you on again and talk about more, I don't know, something or other. Sounds good to me. All right. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is normally recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. This time it was recorded by Miles and me at Castle Sexy Dracula in Portland. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions for every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Jay will be back from Latveria. And Richard will be back in X-Force. Presumably, Jay's return will be marked by fewer earthquakes. I hope? Hope springs eternal. Hope springs eternal.